Okay, let's get started this morning. You all have to forgive me, I'm a little bit under the weather. I'm battling insomnia for a couple weeks now, and then I got sick and I can't get rid of it because I can't sleep at night and get the rest that I need. So, got a really bad headache, but I'm going to try to preach anyway. Let's um, continue our study this morning in the book of Revelation. We're going through the messages to the seven churches. And Lord willing, at some point we'll continue on through the rest of the book. We've talked about the church at Ephesus, which was the backslidden church. We just finished up the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. And now we're going to go on to the end of chapter 2 and talk about Pergamos. Some have called this the worldly church or the compromised church. But I'm going to make the argument today that those characteristics don't necessarily describe the problem at Pergamos. I'm going to say that Pergamos is the tolerant church. The tolerant church. And there's far too much tolerance in the churches of America today. Far too much tolerance by, script, by Christians concerning sin and concerning things that grieve the heart of God and the Savior we serve. And as we'll see here, there's a specific sin that Christ calls out to this church. And you have to be pay, very, pay attention very closely to the words, even to simple pronouns in this passage to see exactly what's being addressed here so that we do not misunderstand or misapply the Scriptures. So I want to kind of start this morning from a different angle. Before we get into the Scripture, who can tell me what the very middle passage is in the Bible? Anybody know? Right smack dab in the middle. That's not my understanding. My understanding is the middle verse, when you consider the number of verses, and, 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 and I may be wrong, but is in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. So maybe, maybe Daddy's right over there. I'm not going to debate because he may be right. Uh, but you know, my understanding is that the middle passage in the Bible uh, is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. And these verses have a very interesting thing to tell us concerning not just the Word of God, but the words of God. It says here in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. Notice, every word of God. Not just some metaphysical concept, the Word of God. Not some ethereal understanding. Not just some message. Not just the theme or the main point, but every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. And then listen to the warning of verse 6. Add thou not unto His words, lest He reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. There's far too much addition to the words of God. Even subtraction. And God warns us against this because every word of God is pure. So this idea that the Word of God is just a general theme or that the Bible with many words contains the Word of God or that the Word of God is just some philosophical concept runs contrary to what the middle passage of the Bible very clearly states. That every Word of God is pure. So if every single Word of God is pure, it logically follows that every single Word of God is important. That means every noun... Every verb, every adjective, adverb, participle, 
preposition, conjunction, interjection, they're all important. And we should pay attention to them. Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 35 said very clearly to the Pharisees that Scripture cannot be broken. If Scripture cannot be broken, then every word must be important because every word is a link in the chain. And if you break a link, the chain is weak and does not serve its purpose. In Matthew chapter 5, 18, Jesus said that not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Anybody know what a jot and a tittle is? In the Hebrew language, which was the original language of the Old Testament, except for a few passages that talk about the Gentiles in Daniel, and I believe in Ezra, they were written in Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew. But in Hebrew, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is called the Yod. It looks like an apostrophe. That's a jot. Okay? In fact, the famous name, name for God is the yod Hey. Vavhe, which when you put the vowel points in there, spells Jehovah. Some have pronounced it Yahweh, but Yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is not even a letter. It's a decorative spur on a letter. Here's an example. In the Hebrew alphabet, you've got a, a letter called the Kaf, and you've got the uh, uh, Bet, which is similar, but the only difference is that little spur on the right-hand side. That's what differentiates a huh sound from a vuh or a vuh sound. That's a tittle, a decorative spur. Jesus said that not one jot, smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or even a tittle, a decorative spur, on the letter itself would pass until all is fulfilled. So that tells us that every word, even the decorative spurs, and the preservation of the language are important. These things are important. In Psalm chapter 12, a very important passage that I don't ever hear preached upon talks about this same thing. The words of the Lord, not the Word, the words, plural, of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation, even forever. God promises in Psalm 12 that He'll preserve His Word. <coughs> so when you put all of these truths together, we must understand that every word is important. Every word has a purpose. And every word has been preserved for our understanding and our edification. Now when people began to mess with God's Word, Satan doesn't do it openly he does it very subtly and deceptively. He begins to twist. He begins to rest. He may subtract a little. He may add a little. He may make the language or be instrumental in trying to get the language of the Bible a little more easy to understand. And before you know it, the words have been changed and then the very message has been compromised. It's interesting when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He used Scripture, or tried to, when he tempted Jesus to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple. Satan quoted Psalm 91. It is written that he will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. They will bear thee up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Well, the thing is, Satan left out three simple words. A little small prepositional phrase. If you go back and read the Psalms, it says, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in thy ways. 
Well, what are thy ways? Speaking of there in that psalm, if you go read the whole psalm in its context, the Bible is talking about the protection of those who have made the Lord their refuge and have made the Most High their habitation. That's the condition upon which the protection comes. And Satan just very conveniently pulled that from the Scripture. He came at Christ with the Word of God, but not the words of God. It was the Word of God taken out of context. But Christ, knowing and preaching Himself that every word was important, used Scripture in its rightful context to interpret that which had been taken out of context. So every single word of God is important. Now why am I getting into this this morning? Well, if every word is important, we ought to look closely when we study the Word of God, even at seemingly insignificant terms or parts of speech. There are several places in the Bible where a proper understanding of the Scripture falls upon one word properly understood, or the change of a pronoun, or the preposition can change the whole meaning. And if we don't pay attention to these things, we may misunderstand what the Lord is trying to tell us. And The reason I'm building a foundation here is because we see an example of a very profound pronoun change here in the message to the church at Pergamos. And if we don't pay attention we're going to miss what Christ is saying to the genuine remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are several places in the Scripture where there is a profound change of pronoun. Who knows what a pronoun is? It's a word that, a general word that takes the place of a noun in a sentence, right? Like you, he, she, it, me, we. Those are pronouns. And the pronouns in their context, can be identified from the context. Okay, you, Usually when a pronoun is used, you go back to what's called the nearest antecedent. Antecedent would be the preceding noun to identify who is being talked about here. People have made mistakes failing to remember that. That's why some people would say that the, uh, uh, the prince that shall come in, in Daniel's prophecy of the 70th week is talking about Jesus the Messiah. They don't understand that basic rule of grammar that you got to take the nearest antecedent to the pronoun. The prince, uh, 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 the, the people of the prince that shall come is the antichrist. But anyway, there's several passages in Scripture I want to look at real quickly this morning. First Thessalonians five, one through four. And I just want it's kind of a warm-up exercise so that we can properly interpret the message to the church at Pergamos. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, what is Paul comforting the Christians with? Anybody remember? It talks about the rapture, the coming of Christ to gather His church. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and they which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth, when He sets His foot down on the Mount of Olives at His second coming, but to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, then in chapter 5, he goes on to talk about the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, and the destruction that comes. And many people would teach that the Christian or the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ will be here to experience those things during that time of tribulation, the purpose of which is to pour out God's wrath upon the world and to discipline the people of Israel to wake them up. 
But if you look here in chapter 5, he's just spoken about the rapture and how we can comfort one another with these words. He goes on to say, but of, but of, in Greek this means we're talking about a new subject now, something different. Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now he's talking about a new subject here, not the rapture, but the day of the Lord, which is the coming of Christ, the judgment. Now look at verse 3. Throughout chapter 4, you, we, ye, we, you. Verse 2. I mean verse 3. But when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Paul's not talking about sudden destruction and judgment coming upon us. Them. The world. The lost. Those that are not the church. So see how the Scriptures properly understood show us how God's got everything planned out? People don't pay attention to that change of pronoun when they start teaching that the church will be a part of God's wrath, that day of wrath. Spelled out in Revelation. We'll see that confirmed not only here, but in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 when the church is in heaven. Not mentioned again until the end of the book. We'll get into that later. Another passage that gets twisted and a lot of false doctrines built upon is Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to pay attention to the pronoun. Now why did Paul write such things to the Hebrews which were Jews? cannot deny that in Hebrews the book was written to Jewish people who were wavering between complete trust in Christ and going back and falling upon the Old Testament sacrificial system. Paul's own people. We can't deny that context. That gets forgotten sometimes and leads to a lot of misinterpretation of Scriptures. But Paul tells them in chapter 5 why he's going to get blunt here in chapter 6. He says that, verse 11, that I've got many things to say to you that are hard to be uttered because you're so dull of hearing. That's why he writes what he writes here. These people are dull of hearing. They've got no discernment for failing to study the Scriptures. Then he goes on in chapter 6 to say, well-known passage, verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. And then it goes on to talk about the earth uh, um, uh, bringing forth uh, uh, fruit and things when the rain comes, and that which bears thorns and briars is rejected. And, and he's, you know, you know, a lot of people would say, well, Paul's talking about those that, uh, who were once saved and have turned from the faith have lost their salvation. But if you go down to verse 9, he's talking about them and those. Verse 9, But beloved, we are, better, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. So you have a profound pronoun change. Paul's talking about them and those. And then he says, But concerning you, we're persuaded of better things. Things that accompany salvation. Which is obviously very different than what Paul has just described. So if we pay attention to the change of pronoun, in verse 9 in particular, we'll see that Paul's not talking about the loss of genuine salvation. The salvation of which Christ speaks, all that the Father gives me shall come unto me, and none of them is lost. 
except the son of perdition, which was Judas, foreshadowing of the Antichrist, who was purposed to fall, never was born again, for the sake of prophecy. So again, we've got a pronoun change. Very important to pay attention, or we could be led into a false understanding or misapplication. Hebrews doesn't teach that a genuine born-again believer can lose salvation. Chapter 10 doesn't teach that either. Paul's making the argument, look, you've got two choices, my fellow Jewish people. You've got Christ or judgment. Because since Christ fulfilled the law and became a curse for us on the cross, there is no other sacrifice for sin. So you can go back to the temple and offer up the lamb, but it has no power. That's been fulfilled. So, let's go over to our passage today. Just kind of wanted to set that up, give you a few examples of how the words of God are important, and they often shed a very clear light on the Scriptures that others would say are hard to understand, but the plain truth is right there under our nose. Revelation chapter 2, the message to Pergamos. Let's go ahead and read this, and here's what I want to ask you to do. Pay attention as I read, and I want you to listen for pronouns. And then I'm going to ask you what, who is Christ writing to here specifically in the church and what is the sin of the church? But pay attention to the pronouns. Verse 12, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, I, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, that which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Who is Christ writing to in the church at Pergamos? Specifically. Now obviously this church entertained false doctrine. And there were people within the church that were preaching and teaching false doctrine. Is that who Christ is writing to here? He's writing to the remnant. To the true believers, right? To you, thou. And then He talks about them in the church that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Them that embrace the thing that Ephesus hated. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So Christ is differentiating in the church between the remnant, the true believers, and the false converts. Christ isn't writing to the Nicolaitans or those holding the doctrine of Balaam. He's writing to those who had held fast His name and had not denied His faith. 
And he had something against them, the remnant. Look, verse 14, because I have a few things against thee, because thou hast their them. And then he goes on to tell them to repent or else he would come and fight against them. Not the remnant, but against the false teachers. So that being the case, what was the sin of the church of Pergamos? Was the sin the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Was the sin the doctrine of Balaam? No, that's the, that's the fruit of the world. That's the fruit of wickedness and reprobates who call themselves Christians and false teachers. That's to be expected. What was the sin? They wouldn't, they tolerated. They were tolerating false teaching in their church. The sin for the church at Pergamos was tolerance. So that being the case, Pergamos isn't necessarily the worldly church, although it does show us, show us what happens when the church gets married to the world and brings, into the, brings the world into it. That's the doctrine of Balaam. As we can see from that Old Testament story I'll talk about later. But in... To be more accurate, Pergamos, the remnant at Pergamos, were tolerant. Oh, they had held fast Christ's name. They had not denied His faith. Inwardly, but not openly. Christ knew them, they were His. But He rebuked them because of their tolerance. Have we in America become tolerant of false teaching today? If so, may we be rebuked and may we repent as Christ exhorted the church there at Pergamos. That was their problem. They were tolerant. And false teaching had come into the church. Now, the sin here at Pergamos is more of a passive nature. Tolerance. When a church begins to tolerate false teaching, go on to the message at Thyatira that we'll come to next. And the sin was active. What was tolerant, tolerated becomes what is held and embraced at Thyatira. We see that in the history of the church when Constantine issued the Edict of Tolerance in AD 313, the Edict of Milan, and became the Roman Emperor, and, and uh, uh, united the church with the state, the persecution went out the window. And then paganism began to creep into the church, and the churches began to tolerate it. Give that a little bit of time, and you get down into the Middle Ages, and there's full-blown Babylonian cultism. There's full-blown Baalism and what called itself the church with the papacy and the priestly confession, with Mariolatry, with the idea that the Pope was the vicar of Christ. All of these things go back to that old Babylonian cult that started with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. So at Ephesus you had a church that lost its fervency. What did God bring to rekindle it? Persecution. Persecution came and the church at Smyrna was without rebuke. But when persecution ceased, the church got lazy. Oh, they held fast to Christ's name. They didn't deny His faith, but they became tolerant. And with tolerance comes compromise. And with compromise comes full-blown apostasy. And you're at the point where Christ isn't even on the inside of the church anymore. He's on the outside knocking to come in, like we see with Laodicea. So that's, this is another dangerous crossroads on the pathway to apostasy. I talked about how a loss of fervency is one dangerous crossroads. There's a way out. Repent. Go back to your first works. There's another dangerous crossroads in the life of a church, and that's tolerance. There's a way out. Repent. 
We've got to make a U-turn when we come to these crossroads, not only in our church, but in our Christian life. If we don't, the road begins to go steeply downhill to the pathway of complete reprobate apostasy. Well, let's get a little more specific here. Let's look at uh, these verses one by one. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Pergamos. Well, unlike Smyrna, which was more of a commercial center in the ancient world, Pergamos was a religious center. It was a center of much idolatry. Um, religious temples, there was a great uh, library in Pergamos that contained more than 200,000 volumes, many of them religious texts, false religious texts. It was a center of learning, a center of medicine which was connected to religion, intertwined with religious practices in the ancient world, full of idolatries, full of temples and groves. It was famous, interestingly enough, for its production of paper and parchment. So a lot of these religious texts were preserved because parchment and paper was produced in Pergamos. It was called Pergamenu. That's what they called it. There was a great temple in ancient Pergamos. Asclepius was the god worshipped in this temple. He was a god of healing according to the Babylonian cult religions. And his symbol was a staff with a serpent intertwined around it. Very similar to... a a symbol we see today uh, connoting medicine. The great altar of Zeus was in ancient Pergamos. It was a religious center. It was an idolatrous center. It's located north of Smyrna about 60 miles, so you basically had Ephesus, Smyrna, and then you go up here to Pergamos, which is close to the Aegean Sea up here, near all those islands of Greece. It's not mentioned outside of Revelation, just like Smyrna, Ephesus is talked about in the book in, in the book of Acts and Paul's epistles. But there's epistles to the Ephesians, but Smyrna and Pergamos are not mentioned anywhere but in the book of Revelation. And here, if you go into verse 13, this place is described as being where Satan's seat is located. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. This mention of Satan's seat clearly reveals to us that there is an unseen world. There is an unseen world. I know man thinks he has everything figured out. I know man and some of these college students who have never thought critically about anything in their entire lives, but they've heard the professor say something or they've read a couple of paragraphs in a textbook. They think they know everything and that truth is only what can be seen. But there is an unseen world. There is a spiritual realm. Satan and his minions are organized and they are at work behind the scenes of everything that takes place in human history. There are principalities and powers that sit in high places, behind governments, behind kings, sometimes behind churches, sometimes behind the eyes of pastors. On Friday, I had the, either the privilege or the non-privilege of staring a demon right in the face, right behind the beady eyes of a local pastor in this community, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt I was staring at a devil. Satan and his minions in this unseen world are organized. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 refers to Satan as the prince 
of the power of the air. If he's a prince, then he must have minions. 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the God of this world who blinds the eyes of those not interested in the truth. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? Somebody read that. Ephesians 6, 12. It's a very popular verse. Ephesians 6, 12. Principalities and powers. High places. Spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have the victory in Christ Jesus. Satan is a defeated foe. There is not this cosmic duality whereby God and Satan are battling over control of the world or of the universe. God's above all of that. Jesus won the victory at the cross. For a time, Satan has power, but it's limited. Satan's a defeated foe. Those that would argue that Jesus' death on the cross was not penal, not substitutionary, they would say, there are those that say, well, Christ didn't die to satisfy the wrath of God. God's not like that. God didn't punish Jesus on the cross. Well, if that's the case, who was Jesus paying on the cross. If you don't believe that Jesus died to satisfy the righteous demands of God's law, and you don't believe that God, as it's clearly said in Isaiah 53, was pleased to bruise His own Son as a substitute for our sins, then who exactly was Jesus paying when He paid for the sins of the world? Would you say He was paying the devil? If so, then you would say that the devil and God are on equal footing. That's not the case. The devil had to ask God for permission to tempt and to torment Job. So who was Jesus paying? If you're going to claim that Jesus wasn't punished by God to satisfy God's righteousness, then you're going to have to... You're going, and you're not willing to say that Jesus paid the devil, then you would have to say that Jesus didn't die to pay for anybody's sins. Because what would have been the purpose? See how you can get in trouble when you start misinterpreting Scripture? I was told the other day, well, the early church fathers never taught that Jesus died to satisfy God's righteousness or His wrath. I don't care what the early church fathers taught. Most of these people who cite the early church fathers have never looked at the multi-volume, very detailed, very thick, very intimidating set of post-Nicene and anti-Nicene church fathers. I've actually studied those texts. I've actually used them in writing papers and articles when I was coming up through college and seminary. Very difficult reading. Very hard to find anything in there. So anybody that throws that language around has never cracked those books. Doesn't know what they're talking about. But I don't need some early church father to tell me the nature of the cross because it's plainly spelled out not only in the prophecy, not only in the prophecy of Isaiah 53, but numerous times throughout the New Testament, Paul said that Christ was made a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. The Bible says Jesus died the just for the unjust. But Satan's not on equal footing with God. He's a defeated foe, but he is very organized and there is an unseen world. Daniel the prophet was praying and waiting for revelation from God. And when the angelic messenger showed up in chapter 10, he said, Daniel, I'm sorry it's taken so long. The prince of Persia resisted me. A demonic spirit behind the empire of Persia 
that angelic spirit fought with. And later, the prince of Grecia, which was a demonic spirit behind the kingdom of Greece, was mentioned. On the side of good is Michael the archangel who stands up for the people of Israel. But there is an unseen world and Satan's minions are organized and at work behind the scenes. Now remember, he is not omnipresent like God the Father, like the Holy Spirit. So he has to be highly organized and dependent upon his agents to accomplish his work. Now a lot of times we'll talk about how we're tempted by the devil. The devil or Satan tempted me today. It's more likely that Satan doesn't even know who most of us are because we're not as big of a threat to his kingdom as we think we are. I'd like to be a big threat to Satan's kingdom. It's probably one of his minions, one of his imps, one of those devilish spirits that does his bidding. Satan is not omnipresent. Now, Satan made a claim when he tempted Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He made a claim. I'll just read that real quick. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and the glory thereof and said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Friends, that was no false claim that Satan made to Jesus. If it was a false claim, then it wasn't a temptation. If Satan didn't actually have authority over these things and couldn't actually offer them to Christ in return for His worship, then it was no temptation. That'd be like somebody tempting me to watch a dirty movie in a log cabin up on a mountainside where there ain't no phone service, where there's no television, and no possible way of watching it. It wouldn't be a temptation at all. This was no false claim of Satan because these things have been given to him by God for a time to accomplish God's purpose. So Satan is the God of this world. He does rule the world at this point in time. Some people would say that, well, Christ is reigning over the world now. We're living in the millennium. Or Satan was completely defeated at the cross. He was defeated at the cross. He's living in a period of probation right now. The final sentence hasn't been executed. It's been given. It just hasn't been executed. But the Bible talks about in Hebrews how Christ sits at the right hand of God and how we don't yet see all things put under His feet. And that He's expecting until His enemies be made His footstool. You see, Christ does reign in the hearts of His people, the church. But there's coming a day when He will actually rule and reign over the world. And until God accomplishes His purposes in this church age, Satan is the God of this world, but he is a defeated foe because what God declares from the beginning does come to pass. Pergamus, like certain locales of the day, was a satanic stronghold in the ancient world. Now there are satanic strongholds in America. Places where you go that Satan has an influence there unseen in other places. I can think of one right here in North Carolina. Satanic stronghold. If you go back and study the history of Asheville, you can understand why that's the case. Northern California, Humboldt County. Satanic stronghold. There's been occult worship up there in those redwood groves, some of it involving leaders in our national government going back to the early part of the 20th century. California. Kali. Kali. That goddess of blood from Hinduism is right there in the name. Satanic stronghold. Las Vegas, Nevada. Why? I don't know. Satanic strongholds. 
It's lots of places like that. Pergamos was where Satan's seat existed in that day. Seat, that word actually means throne. It was his center of operations, his headquarters. But yet the gospel had a voice there. The church reached there in the ancient world. Those early Christians were willing to take the gospel to the center of Satan's kingdom and preach it. And that wasn't on Paul's missionary journeys. Paul doesn't speak of going to Pergamos. So the early Christians must have carried on what he began as I shared with Smyrna last week. There's an interesting story involving Pergamos that literally goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel and the source of all false religion. Baalism, as it's called in the Old Testament. Satanism. Pergamos was tied directly to that same spirit. The spirit of the Babylonian cult that would eventually blossom and flourish in the Roman Catholic Church and secure a foothold in the lukewarm churches we see today. You see, from Babylon, Satan moved his headquarters to Pergamos. And as we'll see later to Rome, to the Roman Catholic Church, and then throughout the world through the spirit of ecumenism that has engulfed the religions of today. The false religious system of the ecumenical church. This false religious system began many, many years ago after the flood. After the flood, as men began to populate the earth, they began to spread out. And it tells us in Genesis chapter 10 that one of Noah's sons, Ham, had a son. Let me erase this here. Ham had a son called his name Cush. And Cush had a son named Nimrod. And it says in the Scriptures that Nimrod began to be a mighty hunter before the Lord and that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babylon. Babel means confusion. Nimrod was the first king of Babylon. Now remember, Shem had some brothers. I mean, Ham did. Shem and Japheth. I don't know if I'm spelling that right. but Many, many years ago, and then it tells us in Genesis 11 that these men migrated to the plain of Shinar in the east, which is the location of the ancient city of Babylon. And they said, what, it, what, what is it that we cannot do? And they began to build a tower. That they, uh, uh, this tower. With this tower, they tried to reach heaven, and we know what God did. God came down and stopped them and confounded the languages so that men couldn't understand each other. And it forced them to migrate across the world and uh, into different places and to gather around such as spoke their same language. So we had uh, the confusion of tongues at Babel. Nevertheless, Nimrod was that first king of Babylon. And his mother was a wicked... This is all according to tradition and ancient text. But he had a wicked mother named Semiramis. She was considered to be the most beautiful woman on the planet at that time, but wicked. And she married, her, uh, married Cush, and they had Nimrod. Cush, for some reason, died. And then later, this wicked woman actually married her son. Okay? 
And they began to introduce the practice of sacrificing babies began to be practiced in this ancient kingdom of Babylon. Well, Shem got word of this. He had seen the judgment of God in the flood, and Shem was supposedly this one who served to try to protect and preserve God's truth and revelation after the flood. Shem was so angry with this false wickedness that tradition says he actually killed Nimrod and cut his body into pieces and sent it all over the area warning people about the consequences of idolatry and false religion. Tradition says this. A lot of ancient text. Well, after Nimrod was killed, this Babylonian paganism, this cultism went underground. And his wife slash mother, Semiramis, became the leader per se. And because it was driven underground, everything became secret. And so such things as priestly confession were introduced. You know, come to the priestess and confess. And then she knows the secrets about you. And then people began to fear and began to give their allegiance. She began to teach that Nimrod had to die to ascend up into heaven as God. And she began to teach that he was the sun god, that he could be seen in the heavens. And these uh, images began to arise of the mother with the child. The mother with the child. Semiramis began to consider herself deity based upon the quote-unquote deity of her son. And so you had this image that would pop up all over the world in all false religious systems of the Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven goes back to this woman, this wicked Jezebel, Semiramis, long before Jezebel was even a forethought in anyone's mind. And the Bible speak of Nimrod as Tammuz in the Old Testament. The mother-child the mother-child. Babylonian cult. The mother derived her glory and claims to deification from the son. If you look in ancient Egypt, you have Isis, the mother, queen of heaven, and Osiris, the god, the sun god, pictured as the child. In ancient China, you've got Xingmu, the goddess of heaven, with the sun god as her child. In uh, Phoenicia, you've got Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth is the queen of heaven. They worshipped her in the groves. See it throughout the Old Testament. In ancient Greece, Diana. So you've got Nimrod became known as, or Tammuz was also known as Baal. And so you've got the origin of Baalism. And it pops up in Egypt, pops up in China, pops up all over the, all over the ancient world. And its center was at Babylon. Baalism was the chief religion of Babylon. And then down through the ages, this same spirit would manifest itself in a number of ways. After the death of Belshazzar, which was the king of Babylon, who saw the handwriting on the wall, in Daniel chapter 5, the Persians came in and took over the city according to prophecy and expelled 
the Babylonian priest and the priest kings from the city. It's about 538 B.C. These priests were called the Adelan priest. I'm jumping way ahead in history now. About 1,700 years later from the time of Nimrod. Interesting, interesting fact about Nimrod and about Babel and the plain of Shinar. Philologists are men that study languages. And most philologists will admit that there's evidence that all human language can be traced back to a single source. I mean, I see evidence of this in my study of language and studying English and, and some of the, the Latin languages and then speaking Nepali and a Sanskrit language that seems to be so different yet it's similar. But most philologists will admit that all languages can be traced back to a single source. And during the days of Nebuchadnezzar, which was before the Persians took over, and you know the stories of Nebuchadnezzar from the prophet Daniel, and it's, he came and, 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 and uh, uh, conquered Jerusalem and burned the temple and carried away the children of Israel captive in 586 B.C. But Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt the base of the Tower of Babel in his day. The base of that tower was 460 feet by 690 feet and it was approximately 375 feet tall. The base. Just the base. Nebuchadnezzar called it the Temple of the Spheres. And today the ruins of that base are still there uh, on the site, near the site of ancient Babylon. It, today it's only about 150 feet tall with a circumference of 2,300 feet. But the reason we know this is the base of the Tower of Babel spoken about there in Genesis is because there's an inscription, an inscription by Nebuchadnezzar that's been unearthed and translated. In this inscription, Nebuchadnezzar, who claims to author this, refers to the base as the most ancient monument of Babylon. And he calls it Borsippa, or the Tongue Tower. Very interesting. The Tongue Tower. He says a former king built this tower, but he did not finish it. He did not finish its head because the people abandoned it, unable to express their words with order. So here you have an ancient Babylonian cuneiform inscription that confirms the story of the Tower of Babel, written by Nebuchadnezzar. An example of archaeology, again, proving the Bible to be true. So the ancient Babylonians saw this base, all that remained from that tower, built 1,600-1,700 years earlier, and they saw it for what it was, built a temple upon it, and called it the Tongue Tower, recognizing that it wasn't finished because the people stopped being able to express their words with order. This was discovered, this base was discovered in the 19th century by archaeologists, and it was a French professor pair who actually translated the cuneiform. And it's amazing to see these references that agree exactly with the Scriptures in Genesis chapter 11. Something that many people would say is just a fairy tale. It's a side note, archaeology confirming the Scriptures to be true. But anyway, these Adelan priest kings were expelled from Babylon when the Persians took over. And guess where they migrated to? Pergamos. They migrated to Pergamos, and Pergamos became the center after the Persians overtook ancient Babylon, something Daniel prophesied before it even happened. It's an interesting story. On the night of Belshazzar's feast, the Persians entered the city of Babylon. And the reason why the Babylonians weren't 
too concerned about the armies on the outskirts of the city is they, were, they had a huge thick wall. They had gardens and ability to, to, to grow food within the city. The river actually ran through the city. The Euphrates River actually ran through the city. So they could endure a siege for an unlimited amount of time and had no concern that they were in any real danger. You know, they figured eventually the Persians were going to give up and go home. But in a mighty feat of military engineering, the Persians actually rerouted the Euphrates River outside of the city of Babylon. Actually rerouted that mighty river so that the channel coming through the city dried up and the Persians snuck in in the riverbed underneath the city walls and surprised the Babylonians during this drunken feast and overtook the city. An amazing feat in military history that happened according to prophecy. But these priest kings were expelled and they moved to Pergamos and set up shop there. It became Satan's capital. The center of the source of false religion, the false religious system. In 133 B.C., the last Adelin priest king, Adelus III, actually in his will when he died, willed the dominions of Pergamus to the Roman people. And Pergamus and its kingdom was merged into the Roman Empire. It's very interesting that later Julius Caesar, who was a Roman emperor, took the title Venus Henectrix, which means supreme civil and rule, uh, religious power, or literally translated, that which is born of Venus, the Queen of Heaven. He took the title that Semiramis applied to Nimrod for himself, claimed to be the source of supreme civil and religious power. He functioned just like the legitimate Babylonian pontiffs of old, laid claim to the same power vested in them, laid claim to the divine dignity of Attalus, as did all the Roman emperors down to the days of Constantine. I'm just giving you a little bit of a history lesson here. Constantine believed himself to be the rightful heir to the throne of the Caesars. There was question about that upon the death of his father, so he had to fight to earn the right to be Caesar. On October 28th, in the year 312, he met the armies of Maxentius, his rival, at a place called the Milvian Bridge. He was outnumbered. Constantine was outnumbered greatly. But the story says the night before the battle, he had a vision. He had a vision in the sky was this message that said, in this sign you will conquer. And then supposedly there was a sign of the cross. And the message was, oh, in the sign of the cross I will conquer. Okay, we'll become Christians. And so he hastily baptized all of his soldiers and they painted this symbol on their shields. And then the next day they won the battle. And the conclusion was, the God of the Christians helped us. We're all Christians now. And so... I'm simplifying things here. In 313, the Edict of Toleration, Christianity was now tolerated in the kingdom. And Constantine made himself the head 
of the quote-unquote church and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now the problem with that is all he did was unite the church and the state and proclaimed himself the leader and subsequently the Roman state, which was pagan in origin, full of pagan practices, married the church and brought all those practices into the church and just changed a few names and called it Christian. Now if you go back and actually read the account, it's been preserved in a couple of different sources of this vision. What's described in that vision is not a cross, as we understand it. What's described looks like this. Here. That sign is the Egyptian Ankh, which is the sign of Osiris or Horus, the sun god. Sol, Nimrod, Tammuz. That wasn't the Spirit of God that was behind Constantine. It was the God of this world. And what happened at Milvian Bridge and what later happened in the Roman Empire resulted in persecution. Leaving the church was a good thing in some ways. But the church got married to the world. And as a result, compromise gave rise to the center of the false religious system today, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Constantine, in effect, was the first pope. He took the title Pontifex Maximus, or Sumus Pontifex, at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, setting himself up as the head of the church and, in effect, the first pope. The bishop of Rome, uh, you know, they would say that Peter was the first pope and Eventually, this gave rise in the 600s to the first pope that took that title. But Constantine, as the Roman emperor, took that title. And spiritually speaking, that pagan head of a false religious system came down from Nimrod through Babylon to Pergamos into Rome into the Roman emperors and right into the papacy. So what we see in the papacy today is not a descendant, a spiritual descendant of Peter, Peter was never in Rome. When he wrote his epistles, he said, the church at Babylon salutes you. He was in Babylon. The papacy is a descendant of Nimrod and that false religious system, Satan, the spirit that was at Pergamos. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church has labored to bring all of its quote-unquote lost sheep back into the fold with the spirit of ecumenism. And we'll see that all of that will be a part of that great false religious system that will usher in Antichrist. Antichrist will then turn on that religious system and set himself up as God. People will worship him. So there's a little bit of a history of how Pergamos is tied directly to Babylon and directly to Rome. And that's why it was written here that that was the location of Satan's throne. It was a cult center tied directly to the false religious system that is sought to stamp out not only God's people Israel, but God's witnesses and God's prophets and the church throughout history. The Roman Catholic Church has been the greatest source of persecution against Bible-believing Christians in the history of the world. Fifty million Bible believers butchered at the hands of the quote-unquote church from A.D. 500 to A.D. 1500. Greatest enemy of the printed Word of God in the history of the world. So those that would claim that Romans and Catholics are just 
a denomination of Christians, and that we can all work together, and we should all work together, are profoundly and willfully ignorant of history. Profoundly and willfully ignorant of our persecuted Baptistic forefathers who saw the papacy for what it was, the spirit of Antichrist. Go, go read the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession from the 1600s, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, the Philadelphia Baptist Confessions, early Baptists in America who, who, who promulgated what they believed. It's very clear that the head of the church is not the Pope, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Pope is the spirit of the man of sin, Antichrist. I know I didn't get very far today, but I wanted to give you a little history lesson, and I, I had to give it in very general terms. There's a lot of specifics there, but it's very interesting to trace that wicked spirit, the heritage of, you know, just like the church has a heritage built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the head being Jesus Christ, all man made religion, all false teaching also has a heritage. Just like the Word of God, the pure Word of God, preserved down through the ages, even to us in a language we can understand, has a heritage. So does false religious teaching. So does the corrupted, attempts to corrupt the Word of God. These all have a heritage as well. But praise God, Jesus Christ has the victory in this unseen world, this unseen kingdom that has capitals and highly organized Armies to go out and deceive the world is just biding its time. The end has already been written. To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. What is that sharp sword with two edges? It's the Word of God. And what does the Word of God do? It divides. Why does John highlight this aspect of Christ taken from the vision in chapter 1 for the church at Pergamos. As I said in the message about Smyrna, that the Smyrna Christians were reminded that Christ was He that was, alive, was dead but is now alive. They were persecuted. And so the aspect of Christ John had seen in chapter 1 that he emphasized for the church of Smyrna was that you're suffering, but just like Christ who was dead and is alive, you will have the victory. In chapter, you know, at the message to the church at Ephesus, John reminded them that uh, John used or, or unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the churches. Ephesus needed to hear that because Christ knew them, he knew their heart, and he saw what they thought they could hide from others. Here at Pergamos, the remnant is reminded that Christ has that double edged sword from his mouth, the word of God. The one that divides. And what does it divide? It divides between true remnant believers and false converts and those that are playing the game. Those who honor God with their mouth but their lips are far from Him. Those that profess to know God but in works they deny Him being abominable and unto every good work reprobate. You see, the church at Pergamos was a heterogeneous mixture of true and false believers. Those that were bringing in that spirit of, Babylon, of the Babylonian cult. You know, this idea of hierarchy in the religious system and then the error of Balaam, which is the marriage of the church to the world, that's all pagan. 
those false believers bringing that influence in the church and then the true believers who were tolerant of this. And it was the sword that would divide. That double-edged sword, the Word of God, the Christian's only offensive weapon in his armory. Ephesians chapter 6, called the sword of the Spirit. Here in chapter 12, it's interesting in the Greek language that the definite article, the word the, is repeated three times here. So in other words, he who has the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. That's how it reads literally. Twofold character, double-edged sword, the Word of God. It's the means of salvation. The Word of God is the means of salvation to cut the chains of sin and condemnation that bind the helpless sinner. Praise the Lord. But that Word is also the means of condemnation to cut to pieces those that reject the Gospel. It's sharp enough, God's Word, to divide with precision. To divide, to reveal true, genuine belief from false conversion. Somewhat of a paradox. This paradox is spoken of elsewhere in the Scriptures. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is referred to as the stone which the builders rejected. Fulfillment of prophecy there in Psalms. And it says, Whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken. But upon whomsoever this stone falls, it will grind him the powder. You see, the paradox of the Gospel is this. You can fall on that stone, and when you do, you will be broken. You will be broken unto repentance and faith and a life change. But if you will not fall upon that stone and be broken, it will fall upon you and grind you to powder. John chapter 12, Jesus said, If any man hear my words and reject me, I don't judge him. I came into the world to save the world, not to judge it. But he that hears my words and rejects me already has a judge. It's the word I have spoken and the same will judge him in the last day. You see, Jesus came to save the world. But to reject him means that you'll be judged by his words. And those words will judge you in the last day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul tells the believers to rest in the knowledge of the coming of the Lord. To rest in that knowledge. But then he goes on to describe that coming of the Lord as a day of vengeance when Jesus Christ will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and who have not obeyed the Gospel. So the Word of God is an amazing means of salvation, but a horrible means of condemnation. The Gospel is salvation to God and salvation from God, but condemnation to those that reject it. Jesus Christ and His coming is the blessed hope of the believer, but a terrible day of vengeance to those who have rejected Him. A paradox, you might say. The fact that a man can be forgiven of everything he's ever done if he'll humble himself, repent, and turn to Christ. And yet those who boast in their own goodness seeking righteousness not by faith, just like Israel of old, will split the gates of hell wide open, having no understanding of what true goodness and true righteousness is as revealed in the character of the Word of God. So I want to leave you with that, this question today. On which side of that sword do you fall?
Do you fall on the side where it has cut those chains of sin and condemnation that bound you once as a helpless sinner? Do you fall on this side trusting the Word of God, believing the Word of God? Or do you fall on the other side, condemned? Because though you claim to know Christ, you reject His Word. That's something we should ask ourselves. And that sword would divide in the church at Pergamos between the true believers and the false believers. It divides today. God knows who are His and who are fake. Thank God the remnant even exists in false churches. Thank God there are entire remnant bodies. But that Word of God, a sharp double-edged sword, it knows the truth. You can't fool the Lord. You can't fool His Word. And guess what? Every Word of God is pure. Every Word is important. So we've kind of had an introduction today to the to the message to the church at Pergamos. There's a lot of really, really good stuff in this, uh, these few verses, and I'm excited to get into it a little more. Next week will be Easter, and I'll be sharing with you about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll take a break here from Revelation, and we'll get back into it after uh, Resurrection Sunday. So I hope these things have been a blessing to you. I, I, don't, I hate to get off on side topics, but there's so many interesting truths that, that just blossom from reading these Scriptures, and I kind of want to give you a historical framework so that we can see why these things are, are, are said and why these messages prove to be not only directed to local churches of John's day and descriptive of the types of churches that exist at all times, but also a prophetic foreview of church history. To him that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. While we pray over the meal, this message will be up later on the podcast, and you guys can feel free to catch up if you've missed some of the messages in the past.